Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And when you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Good morning. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Let us pray. God, I just want to thank you for this day and for letting us all be here today. And God, I'm just, I'm just so thankful for everything that you've given me. We are a very privileged nation. And the feed, the hunger and everything, and all the activities we're trying to do in the church to help other people who are not as fortunate, fortunate as us. God, I just want to pray that you would help them to flourish under your hand. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. So I'm excited to continue our series in First John, What is Real?, and over the last few weeks, we've really discussed truth, we've discussed factual events, and what the Bible teaches is the Bible teaches that the events that happened in Scripture were not fairy tales, as we discussed, but they were actual literal events that took place at a particular time in history. We always understand history through the eyes of those who saw it, through their writings, things that have been passed down. The Bible is communicated in the same way. There are eyewitness testimonies within Scripture that teach us and tell us what happened at a time that we were not able to be in. So today we want to continue to discuss what is real. And the question that I want us to ask, and it's also the title of my sermon, is Did It Happen? And we'll get to the it here in a moment. I found this really interesting article by a Reverend William G. Gardig. And he was speaking about Holocaust deniers. Have you, any of you ever heard of a Holocaust denier? So essentially what they do is they say that the Holocaust didn't happen. You know, as we understand history and we understand the events leading up to and even in the midst of World War II, we understand that some six million Jews were killed at the hands of the Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler. We understand that to be truth and that to be factual truth and a historical event that actually took place. Well, I want to read this article about what he said about these Holocaust deniers. He said, I've heard about this conference for people who say the Holocaust never happened. How can people believe it never happened when there is so much evidence for it and many survivors are still alive to give testimony about their experience in the death camps? What is going on with this people? This is my thinking. See if it makes sense to you. Holocaust deniers believe the Holocaust never happened, not because of any evidence, but because they have to believe it never happened. Their logic requires that it never happened. Let me explain. In the view of Holocaust deniers, the Jews and their accomplices fabricated the whole myth of mass executions of Jews by the Nazis. 
I'm not sure just how much of this thinking is conscious on the part of Holocaust deniers, but their logic says that the Holocaust cannot have happened because if it did, it would mean that they were wrong in their dearly held belief about a worldwide Jewish conspiracy that controls Hollywood, the world banking system, the United Nations, and most of the governments of the world. If Jews really did run the world from behind the scenes, why would they have allowed one-third of all Jews of the world to be murdered? In the logic of Holocaust deniers, the Jewish bankers who secretly ruled the world must have had relatives, maybe even close relatives, who lived in the lands conquered by Germany and therefore ended up in the ovens. Surely they would have stopped such a mass execution of their own kind if they had all that power. If the Holocaust really did happen, that would mean that the Jews are not so powerful and that a Jewish conspiracy does not rule the world. But that is an utterly unacceptable thought for those who cherish the belief that a worldwide conspiracy of Jewish bankers is responsible for all the problems of the world. They believe that the Jews ruled the world, so by inescapable inescapable logic, they also know that the Holocaust did not happen. It simply could not have happened, they say. Certainly the picture of Jews as victims being massacred does not fit their view of Jews. The writer uses the same terminology when he's talking about this that Paul uses when arguing for the validity of the resurrection. Did you hear what the writer of this article first said? He said, how can people believe it never happened when there is so much evidence for it and many survivors are still alive to give testimony about their experience in the death camps? Paul uses the same argument when arguing that the resurrection took place. See, the the foolishness of denying the resurrection of Christ, the foolishness of denying that Jesus died on the cross is the same foolishness that you have to embrace in order to say the Holocaust did not happen. The same evidence is available that Jesus indeed walked the earth, perfect life, 33 years, died on the cross and rose from the dead as the evidence that says that the Holocaust indeed happened. It all hinges on eyewitness testimony. Today we know there are still Holocaust survivors. They still walk the earth. There are fewer and fewer every year, of course, but there are ones that you can find and you can ask their testimony about what happened in these death camps and about how they survived and about what they saw. Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, uses the exact same terminology, the exact same logic, the exact same evidence. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Then he appeared to over 500, talking about Jesus, brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. You know what Paul was saying there? He was saying there are still people alive today, back in his time, that saw Jesus, his resurrected body. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They knew Jesus. They knew him personally. And he's saying that he would have had the opportunity to go and speak to those people at the time he wrote the letter to the first, first Corinthians because he could have gone and asked them exactly what they had seen. It's the same evidence. It's the same burden of proof that exists for the Holocaust. And for you to deny that Jesus lived on this earth, he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead, it's the same foolishness that if someone were to deny that the Holocaust happened and six million Jews were killed. 
And here's the thing I think that the writer of this article is really getting at. The reason they disbelieve the Holocaust is because it doesn't fit their agenda and their narrative for what they want truth to be. See, they hate Jews so much that they do not want to fathom sympathizing with Jews. They don't want to fathom that the Jews were victims in this. So they've recreated their own story to fit their own agenda. Today, people are doing the same thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel does not fit the world's agenda. The gospel says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if the gospel says all have sinned, but there are people out there who refuse to believe they're sinners, they refuse to admit that they need Christ, they are not going to embrace the truth of who Jesus is. They're not going to embrace the fact that they are indeed sinners. They refuse to realize and admit that they need help and that they need salvation. Therefore, they argue against factual truth. Many people today deny, they absolutely deny and reject the narrative of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for that very same reason. John chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 say this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light And avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. We live in a world today that does evil and hates the light. And they do whatever it takes to avoid the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. That's the kind of world we're living in today. And people are going to deny the resurrection. They're going to deny Christianity. Not because it's unbelievable. Not because it didn't actually happen. But because they're wicked in their sinful ways. And they refuse to admit they're sinners. And they refuse to admit that they need a Savior named Jesus Christ. Listen, when I accepted Jesus, I had to admit that I was a sinner. I had to admit that I was in need. I had to admit that there was no other hope for me other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say, well, Ben, I've accepted Jesus, but my thought process wasn't elaborate. I'm not saying it has to be elaborate, but I am saying this. In order for you to be saved, you must realize your need for a Savior. You must realize your inefficiency and your insufficiency to save yourself. That's where salvation comes in. Jesus, I know that you did what I could not do. You gave yourself on the cross, willingly bled and died so that I could be saved. So Jesus, based upon the fact that you died and rose again, I trust you for my salvation. Will you forgive me of my sins and will you save me? That is salvation. Today, people reject it not because they think it's a fairy tale, not because it's unbelievable, but because they do not want to admit their wickedness and their sin. So the question that I began with, did it happen? The it that we're going to talk about first, and we're going to really answer two questions. The first one, did Jesus really die on the cross? Did it happen? Did it really happen? We're going to look in verses 1 and 2 of 1 John chapter 2. The Bible says this, My little children, as the Apostle John is writing, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. You know, I I had some pretty good friends growing up. And one of my friends in particular, and I'm not going to share his name. Some of you may know as I say this, those of you who went to high school with me and all. But he did stuff that was a little bit crazy. You know, you've always got one of those friends in the group. 
wires maybe are a little crossed. You know what I'm talking about? And nobody else in their right mind will do it, but he'll do it. You know, and he'll always be the one, hey, why don't you go try this out? And we'd make sure he survived before we tried it, you know. We'd go jump off rocks at Coon Tree and Davidson River and all this stuff, and he'd be the first one up there. He'd get as high as he could find. You know, we knew it wasn't safe, but somehow he survived. Well, he was at my house one day, and this litter of, and my dad will remember this story. He's sitting over here. Um, this litter of feral cats had been uh, birthed, and they were in a, a shed of my dad's where he stores firewood. Well, you know, you don't stick your hand in a litter of feral cats, right? I mean, that's kind of a, an obvious thing. Well, my particular friend found out, oh, there's cats down there. Cool. So he walks down there, and he reaches in there and grabs one of those kittens and pulls that thing out. By the time he gets his hand out, his hand, arm looks like hamburger meat, okay? <laughs> because those cats tore him up. Now, you may say, Ben, did that really happen? It happened because I saw it. It happened. My dad saw it, okay? It really happened. So what, when I'm telling you, when you say hear of a story like that, you may say, well, man, they're, they're just cra- that's too crazy. And so all of you have stories like that, too, where you would tell somebody and they'd say, I don't believe, that's crazy. Man, I saw it. I swear it happened, right? Because you saw it, right? So when we think through that, we have to understand that when we're talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it wasn't just one crazy person who was telling this story. But there were people who verified it, who saw it with their own eyes. Hundreds of people verified the history and the story of the narrative of Jesus' life and his burial and his resurrection. We have to understand that. There was another thing that happened here not too long ago. You know our church has several cameras around campus. And it's crazy what you can find and see on those cameras. It's crazy what goes on in this parking lot after hours. I mean, a lot of us would probably cringe. Debbie's shaking her head. She sees it a lot sitting in the office, right? It's crazy what goes on around here. You think, man, this is Candler, a nice little rural town. No, it's, it's pretty, pretty insane. But anyways, we come here one Sunday, and I think John Brand and Keith Warren, a couple other guys, we noticed a bunch of gravel was in our new parking lot over here. Well, we've got it gated, right? There shouldn't be anybody in there. Well, if you look, you see tire tracks through the grass, through the ditch, and up across the other side. So we all got real curious about why all that dirt and gravel was over there in the parking lot. So we started watching cameras. Well, Debbie ended up finding, you see it is in the middle of the night, a car coming up Milk Sit Cove. There's a stop sign there. They didn't stop. They kept on coming just as fast and as hard as they could. They went across the road, jumped the ditch into our parking lot, right? Well, they never missed a lick. They went in the parking lot, turned around, and come right back across the ditch and back out. Probably tore the whole bottom of their car out, bumper hanging sideways the whole nine yards. You're thinking, Ben, did that really happen? Come on, man. Somebody really did something crazy like that? Uh, yeah, I saw it with my own eyes, on camera. It happened, I promise you. So when we think through things like that, listen, you start to realize this thing about Jesus dying on the cross, this thing about Jesus rising from the dead, it's not so crazy considering all the other stuff that we see and we believe And we don't question a lot of times because we know we saw it with our own eyes. So in Scripture, we have all of these people proclaiming the name of Christ, proclaiming these truths. And one of the things that you're going to hear from somebody who is not a Christian is, well, that's what the Bible says. You know, the Bible is a fairy tale. It's made up. These men who wrote it were just part of a cult, and they were just trying to brainwash everyone. Well, did you know that there is a lot of information about Jesus Christ 
outside of the Bible. I'm going to share with you four specific instances right here. So uh, Emperor Nero, back in about A.D. 64, began to blame Christians for a huge fire that consumed part of the Roman Empire. And he was using the Christians as pawns. Many people believe he started the fire just because he wanted to build nice new buildings in, in the city. But anyways, he blamed Christians to try to turn animosity on the Christians. And the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, had its origin and that is Christ in the English, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, this Tacitus was not a Christian. He wrote this back when Nero turned everyone against the Christians. A.D. 64, first century, 20, maybe 30 years after Christ had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And you have this secular Roman historian writing about this man named Christ, this one who suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's not just in the Bible. Even secular historians said the same thing. Pliny the Younger, he was a, an, a, or a, a, an assistant to Emperor Trajan. He was also a Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. In one of his letters dated around A.D. 112, which have been maybe 60 years, 70 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he asked Trajan's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those accused of being Christians. Pliny says that he needed to consult the emperor about this issue because a great multitude of every age, class, and sex stood accused of Christianity. It was illegal at that time. At one point in his letter, Pliny relates some of the information he has learned about the Christians. Listen to what he says about Christians. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Then you go to Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian. So we've heard from the Romans. Now let's see what the secular Jewish historian says. About this time there lived Jesus, Josephus said, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. So there are only a few references like that, but they are very clear and they sync perfectly with the scriptures. Here there was also something called the Babylonian Talmud. Now this was a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings compiled between the years of A.D. 70 and A.D. 500. One of them says this, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, which is Jewish for Jesus, was hanged. 
For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So here we have again a claim that Jesus was indeed building animosity against him by the Pharisees eventually to die. Lucian of Samosota was a 2nd century Greek satirist. In one of his works, he wrote of the early Christians as follows, The Christians worship a man to this day the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Now understand, these are not biblical. These are not inspired. But these are people who lived very closely to the actual events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, it would be like us uh, accounting the events of September 11th. Okay, that's the proximity that we're talking about uh, from the events to the writings of the events. They would have been very fresh in the minds of many who maybe had seen Jesus themselves or new people had seen, who had seen him. They were very familiar with the accounts. So let me ask you this. We know that Jesus died and rose again. The Bible says he did. Outside the Bible says he did. There's no refuting evidence that says he didn't. There's no refuting evidence that says that he didn't rise from the dead. So we've established that fact, right? But why does it matter? Why should it matter that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? Why should I care? Why should your neighbors and friends care? Why should your loved ones care whether or not Jesus died and rose again? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 plainly tells us why we should care. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Did you hear what that said? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You know what that means? That if Jesus did not die on the cross, you cannot be forgiven. If Jesus didn't shed his blood, you cannot be in the presence of God in heaven one day. Remember, we believe God is holy. We believe that there is no sin in him. As we preached a couple of weeks ago, there is no darkness at all in him. So if I'm a sinner and my sins are still laid to my account, and I stand before a holy God, he is not going to be able to keep me in his presence. My sin offends him. My sin cries out against his holiness. Listen, I need forgiveness. I need my sins to be washed whiter than snow. And the only way for that to ever happen, the Bible says there must be blood shed. Now, not just any blood. You can read through the Old Testament as we're studying Leviticus on Wednesday nights. You're going to find that there was no shortage of blood spilled in ancient Israel. Every single day, goats and lambs and bulls and rams and pigeons and doves, where their blood was being spilled on the altar to atone for the sins of Israel. But later on we find in the New Testament that the blood of animals never truly forgave. It was a picture for the perfect sacrifice that would come one day and shed his blood, a once and for all sacrifice. You know why we don't have to sacrifice goats and lambs anymore? Because the perfect lamb died. Because the perfect lamb rose from the dead. Because he took his blood to the altar of heaven and presented it to God the Father. And God the Father said, that's enough. That's all we need. That's right, that right there is enough to save the entire world from their sins. 
Remember what 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. Listen, I don't believe that Jesus just died for the elect. You know, there's some people out there that say, well, you know, God predestined all these people to be saved, and Jesus, when he died on the cross, he only died for those who were going to be saved. I don't believe that. The Bible says Jesus died for the whole world. Hey, did you hear what the Bible said? I mean, I'm not sure about y'all, but that's what it says when I read it. Not just the world, but the whole world. Listen, Jesus' blood on that cross is sufficient enough to save every person who has ever lived or will ever live on this earth. But it will only be effective for those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. People will die and go to hell. And that is a reality that we face. There are people all over the world dying today and going to hell because they have rejected God. They have rejected Jesus. But they're not dying and going to hell because there was not a sacrifice provided for them. They're not dying and going to hell because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't quite good enough to do it for everybody. They're dying and going to hell because they suppress the truth that is innately and created within them. They're suppressing the knowledge and understanding of God and the evidence of God in creation. That is why people die and go to hell. The reason it matters, the reason we need to ask, did it happen? Did Jesus die on the cross? Because if he didn't, then we're hopeless. Listen, as we talked about that young lady who took her life, there are many others just like her in our community today. There are many others having suicidal thoughts as we speak. Some of you in this auditorium may be having suicidal thoughts. You know why it matters if Jesus died on the cross? Because there are people hopeless who need to know that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who created them with eternal value, who loves them so much that he gave his only son to die for them. They they need to understand that their life is important, and to take their life would be an offense to God and would be crushing a beautiful creation that God has made. You know, when we read there in uh, verses 1 and 2, there is that word there in many of your versions that would say propitiation. In verse 2, he himself is the propitiation, right? In some of your uh, versions, it may say it is an atoning sacrifice. Well, the Greek word there in verse 2 actually means the appeasing of something. The appeasing of something. So essentially, what we have to understand is, is that Jesus' death on the cross appeased the wrath of God. Now, many people don't like to hear about the wrath of God but the wrath of God is a reality. And it isn't a reaction against us as creatures. It is a reaction against our sin. It is a, is it, because your sin cries out. Remember when Abel and Cain had their conflict and Cain murdered his brother Abel? You remember what God said to Cain? He said, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the earth. In other words, sin, no matter where it's committed in this universe... It cries out against the holiness of God. And God's only proper and just reaction against sin is wrath. You may say, he's mean. No, he's not. He's God. He has a right to lash out in wrath against sin because he's holy. It might be wrong for me to lash out against wrath or against sin because I'm a sinner. Right? 
It may be bad for me to, to place judgment on someone else when I'm committing the same sin. But you've got to remember, God's not committing sin. God doesn't know sin. God doesn't understand sin. God is perfect and he's holy. And when he lashes out in judgment against sin and he exhibits his wrath, he is doing the very just and perfect thing that his character demands of him. So when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus took God's wrath for me. Jesus' death appeased the wrath of God. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, God took his wrath and poured it on his son instead of pouring it on me. It was the perfect substitution, 100% free and clear. Jesus got my sin, I got his holiness. Jesus got my judgment, I got eternal life. It wasn't a good deal for Jesus, by the way, but he did it because he loves us. Today, if you're considering suicide, if you think you don't matter, if you think you're not important to God, I need you to go in here and read 1 John chapter 2. You need to understand that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, that he wasn't okay with you just dying and going to hell without having the price paid for you. He wasn't okay just throwing you to the side like you're a piece of garbage. He loves you. He created you and he made you in his image. That's why Christianity is so beautiful. That's why we can stand on a platform being pro-life. Because Christianity is the only faith that truly teaches human value. If you look at Hinduism, listen, a Hindu could see a beggar on the side of the road and they would leave them and not help them. You know why? Because they believe in their cycle of karma and reincarnation that they deserve what they're getting. Listen, and I'll tell you right now, I deserve eternal damnation and punishment in a place called hell. My very thoughts are wicked. My actions are wicked. At my very core, I am a sinner. But even though I deserve hell, the God of heaven gave me eternal life. He became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for my sins. So today, I can go to heaven not because Ben Heise is good and not because Ben Heise has done some really moral and, and, and commendable things, but because Jesus Christ died on the cross and I simply accepted that gift based upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says this, If we walk in the light... As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Listen, one thing we can't fail to mention is the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to talk about the blood. We need to sing about the blood. The blood is important. Without the blood of the lamb, you would be hopeless today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4 say this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Paul's saying this, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let me ask you something. Did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, he did. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, he did. The evidence is there. The scriptures attest to it. The eyewitness accounts are there. Indeed, factually, logically, evidentially, Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He did die on the cross. He did rise from the dead. And your only hope today is in his sacrifice on the cross. So that's the question we answered first, right? Did Jesus die on the cross? Did it happen? 
Now we need to ask a personal question. Now we need to take what we know about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we need to point it back on us, and we need to ask this question here. Have you come to know him? Has there ever been a time and a place where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Did it happen? Has the conversion taken place? Hey, we know it. We know Jesus did his part, right? We know he died on the cross. The Bible teaches us that eternal life, salvation, is a gift of God, right? So what do you have to do to receive a gift? Take it. Accept it. Receive it. That's salvation. Salvation is not a mystical prayer you pray. It's not a spell somebody casts upon you. It's not going through uh, catechisms. It's not going through confirmation services. It's not being baptized. It's not getting dedicated at your birth. It's not being sprinkled. Okay, that's not salvation. Salvation is a gift of God, and it's when you come to a realization of your need for him and you say, yes, Lord, I'll take it. Give it to me. I believe. That is salvation. Let's quit making it so complicated. Let's quit being afraid to share our faith because we're afraid we're going to mess it up. Listen, it's that simple. Tell somebody what happened to you. Tell somebody about how you were a sinner. You knew you needed Jesus. You understood Jesus to be God, that he rose from the dead and died on the cross. Tell them. Say, do you trust that? Do you receive that today? They don't even have to close their eyes and pray. Do you know that? You don't have to pray to be saved. Yes, Lord, I receive you. Bam, saved. Doesn't have to be some a preacher doesn't have to lead you. It doesn't have to be in VBS, although those things can happen. Yes, Lord, I accept you. You're saved. That is salvation. It is a gift of God. Jesus did all the work. All we do is receive Jesus. Now, as we look at First John here, I love how John uses the word know, K-N-O-W. I'm the kind of person that I tend to doubt, I tend to question. I tend to never be sure about anything, right? I love that word know because when I can know something, I get a sense of satisfaction within me. And I'd say many of you are that same way. How can I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? I mean, that's an important question. That's a question that everyone really should be asking. How can I know that when I die, heaven will be my home? I want to share some statistics with you. If the United States had only 100 people in it, okay, and somehow we were able to line up these 100 people in this auditorium, and, and they beautifully resembled the overall picture of all the people in the United States, 25 of those 100 would be what's called evangelical Protestants, which would be us. We would fall in that group of folks, okay? Anybody who's evangelical would fall in that category. 15 of them would be mainline Protestants, maybe United Methodists, maybe Presbyterian USA, maybe Episcopal. Six would be black Protestant, maybe AME, Zion, and some of those other churches. 21 would be Catholic. And then two other would be some sort of other Christian sect or denomination. So out of 100, that means that 69 are Christian, profess to be Christian. Now, it's debatable whether Catholicism really um, uh, symbolizes or resembles Christianity. But let's throw them in there just to make this interesting, okay? 69% of the U.S. population then claims to be Christian, 69%. But yet we have a president in office that supports abortion. But yet we have politicians being elected to office every single day that supports the systematic annihilation of unborn life. We have politicians in office that support transgender reassignment surgery. 
we have people elected by the supposed population of the United States that claim that all truth is relative and you just be yourself and it can be okay. We have a nation who hates law enforcement, who is literally the only barrier between us and chaos and anarchy. And then we think 69% of our country is Christian? I don't think so. Let me ask you this. You go into the doctor's office, which I was actually in the ER this weekend because my little boy had pneumonia. He's home now. He's okay. But when you, when you go to the doctor, thank you, Gloria, or you go into the emergency room, what happens if a doctor comes into your room and the nurse hands him a stethoscope? And he looks at it and he's like, what's this? What do I use this for? I would not feel very comfortable about being there. Would y'all? That's the same thing for a Christian to say, I'm a Christian and live and look like the world. It's that crazy. It's that insane. It's that ridiculous. In John chapter 3, verse 3, the Bible says this. Jesus replied to a man named Nicodemus, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what I think we have in America today? Is we have a bunch of doctors who don't know what a stethoscope is. We have a bunch of people who say, I'm a Christian, and that's it. They don't know what the Bible says. They've never been born again. They've never been changed. The book of Romans, very, or the book of 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, very clearly states that all those who are in Christ are new creatures, right? Old things have passed away. All things are made new. So you know what the Bible teaches? It teaches a Christianity that changes lives. Not a Christianity that is in name only. Yeah, I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm a practicing Baptist. I don't care what you practice, okay? Have you ever been born again? Have you ever been changed by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what matters. Listen, if 69% of the United States was really Christians, I promise you this country would not be in the shape that it's in today. You might take that 69 and you may look at more like 5 to 10% of this nation may be truly born-again Christians. When we look at it through the lens of Scripture, we find out that just because you say you're a Christian, that does not mean that you're a Christian today. Just because your coworkers say that they got baptized one time, that doesn't mean they're Christians. Listen, sharing the gospel is not just, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? No, no, you've got to ask them, what does it mean to you? To know Jesus, because they're going to need to voice that before you're going to really understand whether they've got the goods or not. Your family, don't just take it at face value. You know I'm okay with God. Me and the big guy have settled this. If I've heard that once, I've heard a million times. That means nothing. The Bible doesn't say you need to settle anything with God. It doesn't mean you need to go and bump chest with God and let him know who's boss. The Bible says you're to fall on your face and understand that you're in need of a Savior, that you're a sinner, and that you need his truth to change your life. That's what being born again is. That's what it means to be changed. And today when we realize, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but we can't just leave it at that. Now have you accepted him as your Savior? Has it ever happened in your life? And then if you say, yes, Ben, 
categorically, yes, it has happened in my life for sure 100%. Then the question is, well, how many people are you going to tell about it? How many people are you going to ask that same question? How many 16-year-old little girls and 16-year-old little boys need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they do not take their own lives? Today, church, this is urgent. The Bible teaches us today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You say, well, I'll wait, Ben. I'm okay for now. I'm in pretty good health. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. The Bible teaches us that your life is like a vapor. It's here one second, and then it's gone, just like that. Today, I want to ask you that question. Have you ever accepted Jesus? Bow your heads with us as we begin to worship